Today we have a special guest. We've been doing a series on the Cold War, and the last episode was on President John F. Kennedy. And no series on President Kennedy is complete without discussing his wife, uh, our First Lady, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy, one of the most, if not the most iconic First Lady of all time. We have author Paul Brandis, who just wrote a book. Uh, It was newly published. Uh, I'm looking at the Amazon date. It says August 25th. Uh, so it's fresh off uh, the uh, printer and it should be on bookstalls now. The book is called Jackie, Her Transformation from First Lady to Jackie O. And so we're very pleased to have uh, Mr. Brandis on our show. So welcome. Hope you're uh, having a great day. Thank you. How are you? Oh, very good. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, when we look at the life of Jacqueline Kennedy, there's just something about the Kennedy family. There's something about her specifically that uh, fascinates, continues to fascinate the American public. Uh, and so what basically led you to write this book? Well, exactly for the reason that you just uh, indicated. She is a fascinating person, really one of the most uh, iconic first ladies in American history and even Though she has been gone for nearly 30 years now, she continues to loom large in the popular culture. And uh, so that's why I did it. And I focused on this particular period between her two marriages. We're talking about, obviously, uh, the period between November 1963, when President Kennedy was killed, and October 68, when she married Aristotle Onassis, a five-year period. Uh, because most books on Jackie tend to uh, not focus on this period. They look at her through her White House years or her marriage to Onassis or her later years working in the publishing industry, that kind of thing. But uh, there is not a lot on the five years in between her two marriages. So that's what I focused on. It's an incredible period for her. I mean, growth and change and obviously one of great uh, difficulty uh, too, but uh, just an amazing period. Right. And it's fascinating. You start the book talking about, well, comparing President Kennedy with uh, Aristotle Onassis, the two men in her life that she married, and they make for a very fascinating contrast. Uh, but usually they're seen as kind of, they're, they're basically bookends of your book. Uh, and you know, it starts off with the Kennedy assassination and then gets to Mr. Onassis. But what interested me is that Aristotle Onassis seemed to figure in her life, even when she was married to president Kennedy. Uh, so could you talk, talk about how the Kennedys, including Jacqueline Kennedy got to know Mr. Onassis and just who he was? Well, people were shocked when they got married, but if they knew the full story of the relationship between Jackie and Aristotle Onassis, uh, I think perhaps they wouldn't be quite so so shocked. Uh, Aristotle Onassis, the wealthiest, most powerful men of the 20th century, uh, his wealth uh, in 2020 terms, if he were alive today, would be 
uh, many, many, many billions of dollars. He was just extraordinarily wealthy and powerful. He owned uh, his own uh, airline and a tanker fleet that just uh, transported oil around the world. And he knew everybody and was just a consummate uh, deal maker, that kind of thing, just extraordinarily uh, powerful and connected. And so with someone like that, it was almost inevitable that uh, the the Kennedys, who obviously were powerful and connected in their own way, it was almost inevitable that uh, they would meet. And what people don't seem to know, Richard, is that uh, the Kennedys and Onassis actually met way back in the early 1950s, long before uh, John F. Kennedy was elected uh, president, of course. And they met at, uh, well, a couple of stories about when they uh, first met. Uh, some people seem to think that uh, Jackie and Onassis met at a dinner party in Georgetown. Uh, other people tend to think that uh, they met actually on uh, in Monaco when they went to a dinner party on Onassis's uh, yacht. He owned most of Monaco, by the way, most of the real estate there. He basically uh, ran that municipality, he and uh, Prince Rainier, uh, I suppose. And uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, the Kennedys were vacationing on the south of France, and Onassis heard about this. And, you know, uh, Onassis knew everybody, of course, and Winston Churchill was one of his closest friends. Churchill spent uh, long periods uh, staying on Onassis's yacht, and the Kennedys happened to be vacationing in south of uh, France, and Onassis heard about this, and uh, he had heard that uh, JFK, who was then a senator, wanted to meet uh, Churchill, so he arranged a dinner party, and that, uh, according to some, is where they first uh, met. So can you imagine the dinner party? You've got uh, Aristotle Onassis, uh, Winston Churchill, John F. Kennedy, and Jacqueline Kennedy. What a dinner party. That was. So some people think that is where they first met. So uh, Jackie and Ari actually knew each other long before they got married in 1968. Right. And it's fascinating because uh, Onassis, who subsequently for people that didn't live during that time, they remember him as Jacqueline Kennedy's husband, uh, second husband. But he has a very interesting life story uh, on his own. He basically had pretty humble beginnings and overcame that to become one of the richest people who ever lived, basically. Uh, well, that's true. He was born with a nothing. He was completely self-made man. He was a ruthless, shrewd businessman, and uh, he built his way up, no question about it. He was one of the 20th century's uh, shrewdest uh, businessmen, no question uh, about it. And uh, along the way, of course, and he he did it not just because he was uh, brilliant from a business standpoint, but he was also incredibly charming. He could just uh, charm the pants off you uh, during a, a business deal. He would skin you alive in that business deal, but he would do so while being uh, charming. He was uh, attentive and obviously appealed to uh, women like Jackie and uh, all sorts of other women uh, that he uh, uh, had his way with. Uh, he spoke several languages. He uh, could talk about uh, art and poetry and literature, all of these things. Women loved that. And the fact that, uh, of course, he had a, a boatload of money didn't hurt either. Right. And 
Jacqueline Kennedy visited him in 1963 before the assassination. Well, that's right. After in August of 63, uh, President and Mrs. Kennedy lost uh, a child, Patrick Bouvier Kennedy. He died uh, after two days because a of a uh, respiratory uh, ailment, and it sent both uh, Kennedys into this uh, deep depression. And President Kennedy decided that uh, you know Jackie needed to get away and recharge and. So he allowed her to go on a cruise with Onassis in the uh, in the Mediterranean. So off she went, and she was gone for uh, a couple of weeks, and they had a great time. And it was really the first time they had seen each other in about uh, a decade. So they rekindled their uh, friendship, and that's all it was at the time, just a friendship. But uh, the, so that's sort of uh, how they reconnected and got to know each other uh, again. And then uh, just a month after that, of course, uh, President Kennedy was I should mention also that uh, Onassis is kind of a soap opera. He was having an affair with Jackie's sister, Lee. So after Patrick Kennedy died in August 63, Lee arranged for Jackie to take this sort of uh, uh, restorative uh, trip on Onassis's uh, yacht. So they were there in the Mediterranean for a couple of weeks. And again, this was just a month before President Kennedy was killed. And after the assassination, Lee, again, this is Jackie's sister, uh, she called Onassis and said, can you come to uh, Washington? So it's amazing that on the very weekend of the president's assassination, uh, Onassis was in the White House itself, uh, staying right upstairs. Yeah, I, that's incredible. And at that time, she, he was with Lee. Is that right? He was with uh, Lee. He was also with uh, Maria Callas, who was the uh, famed uh, opera singer. And there were other women sort of uh, who were in and out of his life. But uh, at that point, those were the two principal women, uh, Maria Callas and Lee, again, who was a Jackie sister. Right. And you talk about the link between the trip and the assassination. And it, it sounded there was a, a, a line that you had written or quoted about uh, maybe Jackie feeling guilty about traveling to see Onassis and then going to Dallas, going to Texas with President Kennedy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, when she came back to uh, Washington, it was on uh, October the 17th, uh, she was very grateful that she had been given the opportunity to go. And uh, so her husband, the president, kind of a felt like he was in a position to ask her for a favor. And he did. And he said, uh, look, I'm going on this uh, campaign trip to uh, Texas in late November. Why don't you join me? It'd be great if you uh, went along. And he knew that she would be very popular, the women would love her, and that kind of thing. And when it was announced that she would be going to Texas, it was huge. Uh, she never went on campaign trips with her husband. Even in the 1960 campaign, she didn't really uh, travel very much because she was pregnant with uh, John Jr., uh, and since the 1960 election, she had never been west of the Mississippi. She had never been to Texas, period, in her life. So now it was announced 
Uh, she was doing all of those things, going on a campaign trip with her husband to Texas in late November. And that is how she wound up uh, in that car in Dallas on the day when the president was assassinated. Again, just an amazing story. Right. And it's very interesting. Um, I think, uh, well, one question I was going to have was, uh, what did President Kennedy think of Aristotle and Onassis, as far as we know? Well, he was leery of Onassis because uh, Onassis, uh, again, he was uh, seen as sort of a, a shady businessman, kind of a rogue wheeler dealer kind of thing. He had actually been uh, arrested briefly in the United States in the 1950s. It didn't amount to anything, but uh, he had some you know, that uh, legal run in. And Jackie went to Greece in 1961. And the Kennedys actually forbid her from crossing paths with him for those reasons. That was in 1961. So it was kind of interesting that uh, two years later, uh, she did uh, see him, in fact, uh, stayed on his yacht just two years later because uh, he felt, uh, you know, she needed to get away and needed some R&R after the death of uh, Patrick. But they were very ambivalent about Onassis, really tried to keep him away from uh, Jackie. And uh, so, again, it's really amazing that uh, uh, that literally the weekend of the assassination, uh, as the president's uh, body was laying in the East Room of the White House, here's Aristotle Onassis, who they had tried to keep away from Jackie, and he's right there with her. Right. Now, of course, we have the assassination. It changes her life. And one thing I, I kept reminding myself as I was reading about you know reading your book was that during this time I mean she was she, she was widowed at the age of thirty four so essentially the time that you cover in her book she's in her thirties uh, and right. you know being someone who's you know I'm in my mid 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 to late thirties and so thinking of the incredible burden that she had and having to grieve so publicly and in a sense really lead the country in its grief. Uh, during the funeral and and just being so present during that weekend, it's it's an incredible thing. She must have been just such a strong person to have done that. Well, the the assassination really, uh, I mean, obviously changed everything. Prior to that, uh, she was seen uh, incorrectly. I think she was seen as sort of uh, you know very aloof and above it all, and uh, you know a clothes horse and someone who went uh, shopping all the time and uh, that kind of thing. Now, it is true that she was a she was a clothes horse and she did like to shop and all of that. But uh, being aloof, uh, she was actually, uh, I think, uh, shyness was probably uh, more of a reason. And also, she was extremely protective of her children. She guarded the privacy of Caroline and, and most easily the most important thing to her. So for that reason, she avoided the press and she avoided the press and she was tagged, uh, you know, in kind of some unpleasant ways. But for her, it uh, it was just this uh, desire for privacy and to protect her uh, children. So that was sort of the pre-assassination image. And then Dallas changed all of that. There was this enormous amount of uh, sympathy that, that obviously uh, went out to uh, Mrs. Kennedy, and uh, she, the way that she handled herself uh, the weekend of the assassination, her regal bearing, her stoic demeanor, 
uh, the fact that uh, she kept her her dignity and her head held high in the most incredibly difficult of circumstances. It really forever changed the way that people uh, saw her, and it really changed her from what was just a, a first lady with the you know the shopping. Uh, and all of that, it changed her into and elevated her into really just uh, just an iconic uh, figure. And she stayed like that really, really until she married uh, Onassis, and that sort of knocked her off her her, her pedestal. But uh, uh, but she later kind of uh, reclaimed that image later in life. Right. And there are a few quotes that you put in your book that I think uh, really stand out. One quote. Uh, and this is when her husband was still, uh, President Kennedy was still alive, and she wrote that without him, without Jack, her life would have been a wasteland. Uh, and then after his death, uh, there's uh, uh, you know several very sad quotes. There's one where she said that, I can quote, I consider my life is over and I will spend the rest of it waiting for it to really be over. And again, you know, hearing a 34-year-old say this was heartbreaking. And then there's another quote where she says, Quote, I should have known he was magic all along. I did know it, but I should have guessed it would not last. I should have known it was asking too much to dream that I might grow old with him and see uh, to see our children grow up. So you really get the sense of the grief that she bore during that time. And you write about she blamed herself for not saving his life and, and even that she was suicidal. And uh, could you talk about that and just what you discovered during about that period during her life? Well, it was really ridiculous for her to uh, blame herself for her husband's uh, death. Uh, you could, I could name twenty other things that were, uh, you know, even uh, more of a reason for that. But people seem to forget that it happened so quickly. It was over just in a matter of seconds, really, about uh, six seconds. And uh, she, nevertheless, uh, she spent that first terrible winter. Uh, she would replay those six or seven seconds over and over again in her mind. Oh, if I had only known, I would have uh, pulled him down to safety. That kind of thing. If she, uh, she thought the first uh, gunshot was a motorcycle backfire. There were motorcycles surrounding them, police motorcycles surrounding them in the motorcade. Uh, and nevertheless, she was just racked with guilt over that. She said, uh, the rifle, she said, I've heard that gun go off 10,000 times. She had uh, endless nightmares about it. She began to drink, uh, drink heavily. Uh, she cried all the time, day and night. It was a horrible, horrible period for her, uh, people don't really understand just how horrible it was because, again, she was very private. She guarded her privacy. Uh, she didn't really want anyone to know how difficult it was for her. But yeah, it was so bad for her that uh, in uh, May of 64, April and May of 64, uh, she seriously considered uh, suicide. She confessed to uh, a priest. And uh, she thought uh, she really could do it uh, were it not for uh, her children, Caroline and John. Uh, God only knows what would have happened. She seriously thought about it. And she said the kids would be better off staying with a Bobby, Robert Kennedy, her brother-in-law, and Ethel Kennedy. She actually thought uh, what would happen uh, to them. 
And in the end, I think that's what really prevented her from uh, really, really actually trying to do anything about it. But it was so bad for her that she actually considered that. And again, most Americans don't know anything about this because uh, she was so protective of her privacy. She didn't really tell anybody about this. It was just, a, again, just a horrible, horrible period for her. Right. And and you wrote that she lived after the White House, she lived in Georgetown, and it basically became uh, kind of unsustainable because of uh, tourists would go and they climb the trees and, and basically she couldn't find privacy there during this terrible time. Well, she was worried about her privacy even in the White House, which is an 18-acre complex surrounded by a tall fence and uh, this kind of thing. So imagine how nervous she was living in this house on N Street in Georgetown, which was uh, didn't have a fence. It was only just uh, maybe uh, 20, 25, 30 yards from the street, that kind of thing. There was a uh, slimmed down security presence. She only had a couple of uh, guards with her and that kind of thing. So if she was nervous in the White House, just imagine how she felt uh, now. Uh, and that combined with the fact that uh, all of a sudden, everybody wanted to know what uh, what she was doing. How was Jackie doing? What was she up, uh, up to? So tour companies began to run uh, tour buses uh, down N Street, which is a pretty narrow street in uh, Georgetown. And uh, they would these tourists would get out of the bus, uh, the cameras wrapped around their neck, and they would they would hang out there for hours. They'd have picnics, and some would climb trees, and one person even stole the numbers off the you know the the off the house and that kind of thing. Uh, it was extraordinarily intrusive. She said she couldn't even change her clothes uh, without uh, closing all the curtains because people could look in. It was horrible for her. So it was more than just uh, her lack of privacy. But again, her husband had just been assassinated. She had legitimate security concerns as well, not just for herself, but for her uh, children. She felt like she was a prisoner in her own home. Right, right. Very claustrophobic existence, it sounds like. Extremely. Yeah. Now, two very interesting people that were in her life uh, during this time, uh, her brother-in-law, Robert Kennedy, and here are two people, probably the most grief-stricken by the assassination, and then also the new president, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and there's some very fascinating phone calls between her and then, you know, the new president, Johnson. Can you talk about her relationship with, with Bobby and LBJ? Well, Robert Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson couldn't uh, stand each other. And uh, when I say the, the word uh, hatred, uh, that is not an exaggeration. They really did tend to test each other. And, uh, and here's Jackie in between. Jackie actually got along pretty well with uh, both of them. Uh, she and Robert were obviously the, the principal uh, mourners of, uh, the, of the president's uh, murder. Uh, and then on the other hand, here's Lyndon Johnson in the White House, and he's trying to be as solicitous uh, and protective of Jackie as he could. He's uh, calling her all the time. How are you doing? And he and Ladybird were always inviting her to the White House for dinner. And she was offered, uh, you know, anything that she wanted to do. Do you want to be ambassador to France or ambassador to Mexico? Uh, name you, n anything you want. You let us 
No. Well, she didn't want to do anything. She wanted nothing to do with uh, politics. And uh, she, again, she liked the Johnsons, but uh, she did not want to go back to the White House, uh, period. It was simply too painful for her. And in uh, the time that she lived in Washington after the assassination, she wound up moving to New York in September of 64. But in those uh, 10 months prior to that, she was uh, being driven around uh, Washington. She told her drivers, uh, do not let me even see the White House take, you know, whatever route you have to take. So uh, I can't even look at that building. So uh, there's no way that she would uh, go there for dinner or anything. She couldn't even uh, bear to look at it. Right, right. So too many memories, obviously painful memories. Um, now, it's very interesting uh, when you talk about her her move to New York City, because that's where uh, she had already been influenced, uh, influential in, in terms of fashion as first lady. And she continued to be influential in terms of fashion, uh, but in a very different way once she is in New York City. Could you talk about about that? Well, again, everybody watched Jackie, uh, what she wore, uh, what her hair was like. Uh, Everything that she did was uh, copied. Uh, It it was so in the White House, but now uh, when she was a private citizen, perhaps even uh, more so, everything that she did was just uh, instantly copied. Uh, Women wore what she wore. They had her hair done the way she had her hair done. Uh, She was at the very top of the A-list in Manhattan. So she was the trend setter. And uh, what she liked about Manhattan was that, uh, well, one, it wasn't Washington. She was not, uh, she married into politics, but she was never a political person. Uh, even though her husband was the president, uh, she didn't really like kind of the rough and tumble world of politics. Uh, and so when she moved to New York, all of a sudden she was surrounded with uh, people that uh, she seemed to enjoy uh, more, it was uh, artists and writers and uh, you know, great composers like Leonard Bernstein and those kind of things. So uh, she began to circulate with, uh, again, with people like Bernstein and, uh, and Andy Warhol and Truman Capote and uh, uh, people like that. Uh, she began to enjoy herself immensely. So the move to New York was uh, healthy in a way that uh, got her out of Washington, which she had grown to detest, but it also opened a lot of doors for her, put her in touch with a lot of uh, new people who kind of energized her. And so she began to change. And uh, while she never got over the assassination, uh, she learned to manage it a little bit uh, better. So the trip to the, the move to New York rather was uh, very helpful in, uh, in that regard. And in terms of what she wore, again, I mentioned uh, all the women wanted to wear what Jackie was wearing. They might not have been able to afford it, but they they did their best. And uh, for example, the miniskirt, which was invented in uh, England in 1965, uh, Jackie helped bring the miniskirt to America. She started to wear shorter skirts. Again, we're, we're only talking about a woman, as you say, who's in her mid-30s, very attractive. So she began to wear these uh, shorter skirts, and uh, that really helped miniskirts Uh, take off in America. It was largely because of her. She was enormously influential in just all kinds of ways. And fashion was obviously uh, one of those big things. 
Right. And one thing I, I was thinking as I read about her life there, you talk about how essentially she was she was stalked by paparazzi and by one of the most famous paparazzi, maybe the first great paparazzi of his era, uh, Ron Galella, I think that's his name. And uh, it really struck me. She was kind of the first Princess Diana. When people think paparazzi, they think of Princess Diana. But really, Jackie was kind of the one of the first people to really be, uh, you know, just so scrutinized to the point of, of, of discomfort. Well, the word paparazzi only really dates back to about 1960, by the way. And when she moved to New York again, uh, everything she did was watched very closely. And this photographer who you mentioned, Ron Galele, he didn't really take his first picture of her until about 1967, I think. But there was so much interest uh, in her that it became really just an obsession uh, with him that just uh, really covered uh, pretty much the rest of her life. He is still alive today, quite elderly. I think he's around uh, maybe 90 or so, something like that. But uh, uh, she was his meal ticket for a long time. He would uh, lurk outside her apartment on Fifth Avenue and uh, trail her everywhere. And again, uh, given her the security concerns that she always had, she was very worried about this, would wind up getting going to a court, getting a restraining order against him and uh, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, she was widely followed and photographed by everybody. She was on the cover. She was on more magazine covers, I would guess, than almost any movie star in the 60s. It was just phenomenal. She would send one of her uh, you know, maids down to the nearest uh, newsstand uh, just to get some magazines and cigarettes. She was a big uh, chain smoker and uh, she got a kick out of reading his magazines with her picture on the cover, just seeing how much of it was uh, wrong and a lot of it was made up and stuff. She got a she got a great kick out of that. Right, and it, it's incredible when you you wrote that Ron Galella had actually finagled his way into dating Jackie's maid as a way to break into the to to get into the inner circle, basically. Well, this uh, this happens after the scope uh, period of scope that uh, I talk about. Uh, in the book, but that is true. He wanted to get so close to Jackie that he would, you know, the doorman in her own building wouldn't really talk, but he would bribe a doorman in other buildings and that kind of thing. And he actually wound up uh, dating one of Jackie's uh, maids mm-hmm. for a brief period of time. And uh, that came to uh, an abrupt end when Jackie actually uh, saw the two of them together on the street one day. She was fired then and there, right? And uh, well, obviously with good reason. I mean, that's a huge act of uh, betrayal uh, for her to uh, do that. But uh, but again, that's what uh, that's what she did, right? So going back to the assassination and the time uh, in the aftermath, uh, one thing you wrote was that it seemed that there were two things that kept her going. The first was her kids and just raising them and giving them the best life that they could have. And the second was defining JFK's legacy for history. And she gave a series of interviews after the assassination. uh, And some of those, the contents of those interviews are still sealed. Could you talk about those, uh, that time and the interviews and, and what was said and uh, you know, what she revealed? Well, there are conflicting forces here, two principal 
forces that were uh, at uh, odds with each other. The first was that uh, she was desperate to forget the assassination. She just could not get it out of her mind. It was dragging her down, as I mentioned before, with the thoughts of suicide and everything. She was so desperate to uh, get that out of her mind. And yet, at the same time, she was obsessed with uh, protecting her husband's uh, image and uh, you know, turning him into, uh, you know, this again, this, this iconic, uh, heroic, uh, mythical uh, figure. Uh, so she had to, she single-handedly uh, got the ball rolling on what is now the Kennedy Museum up in uh, Boston. So she was up to her neck with getting the museum off the ground and the fundraising and you know, memorializing him and all of that while she was trying to forget the assassination itself. So these two conflicting forces, she's being uh, pulled in different uh, directions, and that's what she had to deal with. Right. Now, I remember, so I was 11, I believe, around 11 when uh, Jacqueline Kennedy passed away. And I remember growing up and hearing about her, and it, it was almost like she was kind of like the national unicorn in, in that she was mysterious. Uh, she wasn't in the news, but when she did, you know, get on the news, when there was a sighting of her, it was huge. And it would be on, you know, the, the news, it would be on the cover of newspapers or magazines and all that stuff. Um, and there was a very interesting quote where you, you compare her to Greta Garbo, the, the legendary actress. And you, you talk about how, she was someone that liked being noticed, but didn't like being, I guess, uh, acknowledged or didn't like uh, having people interact with her. So it was kind of one of those, she enjoyed the attention, but she didn't want too much attention. Could, could you talk about that? Well, she and Greta Garbo had uh, dinner at the White House, President Kennedy. The three of them had dinner uh, nine days before the assassination. And uh, after that, uh, Garbo sent Jackie just a note of uh, sympathy and that kind of thing. And when Jackie moved to New York the next year, uh, they reconnected and they actually had uh, a lot in common. Greta Garbo, of course, was one of the biggest movie stars in the 1920s and 30s. And uh, she left it all behind, wanted to get away from Hollywood, which she grew to detest. Uh, moved to New York for the anonymity, and she bought uh, this uh, sprawling apartment on the Upper East Side. And uh, it's very similar to what uh, Jackie did. She was uh, sick of Washington, uh, decided to uh, get out and uh, flee. She winds up buying this sprawling apartment on the Upper East Side. And uh, so they actually uh, reconnected in 1964 and would uh, have dinner together and attend small dinner parties together and that sort of thing. And they each liked to go on kind of long, solitary walks around Manhattan where they could be uh, not quite uh, anonymous, but uh, pretty close to it just because it's, the city is so crowded and everything. Uh, they could sort of just uh, disappear and melt into the crowd. And they were both uh, very attracted to that kind of uh, philosophy. So uh, Greta Garbo leaves Hollywood. Jackie leaves Washington pretty much for the same reason. And they reconnected when they were both in Manhattan and uh, that friendship uh, endured for quite a while. 
Right. Now, there are a few incidents that happen uh, that are, some of them are quite heartbreaking and some of them are near tragic uh, that you talk about in the book. One of them is what I thought was a pretty heartbreaking moment where she's picking up her son, John F. Kennedy Jr., and he's being taunted about his father being dead. Um, And then there's another incident where Caroline was basically assaulted. um, And and then another one you talk about where she almost died on uh, in Ireland, it was going for a swim. So could you talk about those specific incidents? Well, again, she had these enormous uh, security concerns about her children that never went away. I mean, you know, even when uh, Caroline and John were grown up and had uh, families of their own, I mean, she was always the mother who always worried about, uh, she was the mama bear who always worried about her uh, cubs. That really never goes away. Um, and there were, uh, those were just a, two examples of kind of the concerns that she had. And those fears were well grounded. In the case of uh, John, uh, it's true, she was walking him home from uh, school one day. It happened to be, I think, the uh, the third anniversary of the assassination in uh, 1966. And uh, these some of these little boys uh, were taunting John, saying, your father's dead, your father's dead. It was what a horrible moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, John wound up uh, holding on to uh, his mom's hand even tighter as they walked down the street. But just a just a searing moment, particularly for uh, Jackie, I would think. And then kind of a uh, maybe even a scarier situation with uh, Caroline. Not too long after that, uh, they were walking out of church one uh, spring Sunday, and this crazy woman on the street actually grabbed Caroline grabbed her by the arm, tried to grab her away, and kept screaming that uh, your father is still alive and your mother is just, uh, you know, an evil person and this kind of thing. And fortunately, uh, you know, the the Secret Service agents who are with them were able to uh, pull Caroline back to safety and everything. But again, what a terrifying moment, not just for Caroline, but her mother, uh, again, who is deeply worried about uh, the security of her kids. And stories like this obviously uh, justified that concern. Right. And now we also uh, read about what you wrote about uh, the men in her life after President Kennedy. You talk about Jack Warnecke, I believe that that was how you pronounce his name. Jack Warnecke. Warnecke, right. And um, uh, Dave Omsmi-Gore, again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, could you talk about them and then how eventually, basically, Onassis emerged from the pack? Well, Onassis was sort of uh, always lurking in the shadows. They didn't really uh, date, but, uh, you know, they they saw each other at uh, social events and small dinner parties and that kind of thing. And uh, so Onassis always called himself the Invisible Man because nobody ever really saw them together. And during this period, again, we're talking about, uh, you know, between late 63 and the fall of 68. Uh, Jackie obviously could uh, go out with anybody she pleased, most uh, most well-known woman in the world and very attractive and uh, uh, wealthy and all of that. Um, and she originally, so she she dated uh, widely and had, had a fair number of relationships. Uh, most were not 
most were not uh, serious. Most were just kind of social things with you know, men escorting her to the theater or a, a gallery opening or something like that. But there were a few that were actually uh, quite serious. And one was uh, John Wernicke, who was a very prominent architect in the 50s and 60s. And he actually knew President Kennedy, and he actually wound up designing uh, the the grave for President Kennedy at uh, Arlington. Jackie's now buried there as well. And uh, they began a relationship that was, uh, uh, I think, by all accounts, a sexual relationship that began in the fall of 64. And it really went on until about uh, 1966. And uh, she was also quite close to uh, David Wormsby Gore, who uh, during the Kennedy era was the British ambassador to Washington. And he had actually known uh, JFK way back in the 1940s when uh, JFK was, uh, he lived in England when his father was uh, ambassador and everything. So uh, again, long histories between the Kennedys and these kind of uh, people. And she dated Ormsby Gore uh, after Warnicky, and that was quite serious too. And he actually asked her to marry him, and it was quite difficult for her. And she was quite torn, but ultimately said uh, no. And she said no in uh, there was a series of letters that the two of them wrote to each other that only became public. Uh, about uh, uh, four or five years ago, I think. And in one of those letters, Jackie said that, uh, you know, I, I can't marry you. I, I mean, I love you. And I have feelings for you, but I can't really marry you because you remind me too much of my painful past. And I simply can't, uh, I can't deal with it, uh, essentially is what she said. And then she told uh, Ormsby Gore, who by then, I joined. He was a member of the House of Lords and British Parliament, so he was also known as Lord Harlech. And uh, she told him that, uh, in some ways, I I feel like you're my brother. Well, boy, what a what a tough thing to read mm-hmm. from a woman who, you know, you who you had asked to uh, marry. So, mm-hmm. uh, so those were two relationships that uh, didn't work out, and uh, those I think were the two most uh, serious ones. And uh, there are a few other people that she. Uh, went out with. But uh, again, during all this time, here's Aristotle Onassis going about his uh, business. And he owned an international airline called Olympic Airways that by now was flying to New York and everything. So he had good reason to be in New York a lot on business. And he had a hotel suite that he maintained at a at the Pierre Hotel on Fifth Avenue, about uh, 27, 28 blocks. Uh, I'm sorry, about the 24 blocks below where uh, Jackie lived. So again, uh, socially, they were always seeing each other at uh, you know, dinner parties and, uh, and that kind of thing. So she had her share of men during the 1960s. Those were the most serious ones. Right. Now, you describe her marrying Onassis as almost like a liberation for her. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, she had spent all this time trying to, uh, you know, again, Uh, move beyond the assassination, uh, get the pain of that behind her. She never, she would live with that for the rest of her life, but uh, um, she never got remarried until uh, Bobby Kennedy was himself assassinated in June of 68. And it was just uh, incomprehensible 
not just to the country and the world, but to Jackie in particular, how could there be two Kennedy assassinations in four and a half years? It's just unbelievable. And again, it simply uh, reignited all of these security concerns that she had, which were certainly legitimate. I mean, her husband was gunned down. Her brother-in-law was gunned down. She had every right to feel scared. And she she had had enough. And the murder of Bobby was so jarring for her that uh, she decided that uh, enough was enough. So I think it was Bobby's murder, again, in June of 68, that really convinced her that she needed to make a break uh, completely. And Aristotle Onassis, as we've discussed, he was so wealthy, could give her anything that she wanted. He had his own private airline, uh, his own uh, island in the Mediterranean, on and on and on. She could give him all of the security and privacy that she wanted. Money was not an issue. You know, when she was married uh, into the Kennedy family, uh, the money that she had wasn't really uh, hers. It was all derived from uh, from the Kennedys. Onassis essentially gave her uh, almost a blank check to spend whatever she wanted. He, the joke is she spent so much on clothes and travel and everything. The joke is that uh, he gave her a blank check and she exceeded it. <laughs> was, uh, and that caused a later strain in their uh, marriage. But uh, in the beginning, uh, he gave her everything that she not just that not not just everything that she wanted everything she needed she had huge security concerns after the murder of bobby uh, he said uh, you will be completely safe with me again with a private army and just a private airline and just uh, everything you need so uh, that was extraordinarily appealing to her and also the fact that they had this history going back uh, years he was not. He he might have been an invisible man, but he was hardly uh, an unknown man. They knew each other uh, quite well, and Onassis also. For a lot of people don't know this, also, uh, he was just extraordinarily charming. He was a good listener, and I think I mentioned before he was uh, quite cultured and sophisticated. Yes, a, a shrewd shark of a businessman, but also uh, enormously appealing to women in that uh, he was a good listener and extraordinarily attentive. And uh, the fact that he had a bunch of money, obviously, was, uh, you know, didn't exactly hurt uh, either. But there was so much about him that appealed to uh, Jackie that uh, I think after Bobby was killed, it was almost uh, just a matter of time before they would wind up getting married. In fact, it was only four months from the murder to the time when uh, she got uh, remarried. And there were a lot of reactions to her marrying Onassis, and one of them, probably the, uh, I think, kind of the the most memorable one was one headline said it was like JFK died again. Uh, what other reactions? What was the reaction to her her marriage? Well, they were shocked. I mean, the headlines were just uh, vicious and full of betrayal, and again, uh, some of these newspapers and. Uh, citizens, not just in America, but around the world. They simply could not believe that uh, she was marrying this guy. But again, they didn't really know the history that uh, we've just uh, discussed. I mean, going back uh, you know, to the early 1950s, they didn't really understand the, the needs that Jackie had for security and privacy. Uh, they just didn't understand uh, what it was like uh, for her. 
everybody around her is getting gunned down. At least that's the way that uh, she felt. And nobody could understand that uh, but her. And the other thing I think about this is that uh, I think that uh, Jackie became such uh, an iconic, mythical, uh, uh, idealized woman after the assassination when she she held herself up so well in those days after the assassination. The, you know, the images of her uh, walking in the streets of Washington and at the funeral and everything. It was just so powerful and uh, iconic that uh, there were people who wanted to always see her uh, like that. They thought, uh, this is the Jackie, uh, this is the way Jackie should always be. And, and in a way, I think it was sort of a selfish sentiment that uh, there were a lot of people who could not understand what Jackie was going through uh, and did not necessarily want her to live uh, her life on her terms, which she was certainly entitled, as we all are, to uh, live a life on uh, on our terms. And uh, that is what she wanted to do. Again, she was only uh, 38, 39 years old uh, in the late 1960s. She had most of her life uh, ahead of her. And yet most people still expected her to keep playing the role of the, you know, the grieving widow and this kind of thing. She did not want to be that way for the rest of her life. She wanted to get on with her life and not be stuck in November, 1963. Right. Now, she still had her New York uh, apartment. Uh, did she live there throughout the marriage or was she in Monaco? How did that work? Well, that was her uh, 1045th Avenue was her principal uh, residence for the rest of her life. She moved in there in September 64, and that would be her main residence uh, until her final days. She died in that apartment in May Ninety-four. Well, she had other uh, uh, homes, of course. She had a. She liked a horseback ride, and she had a, uh, a home in suburban New Jersey that she would go to on weekends. And there was always Hyannis Port, of course, the Kennedy home, and uh, President Kennedy had his own house on the compound, and she inherited that. And so she always had uh, that house. And in the meantime, Onassis, of course, he had a Scorpios, his island in the Mediterranean. Uh, he had a lavish home in uh, Paris. Uh, he had uh, suites and hotels uh, you know, in, in, in Athens and in Rome and just uh, London. I mean, everywhere, uh, really. So uh, she was always on the go, staying in these lavish places. But uh, when all was said and done, uh, 1045th Avenue in New York, corner of 85th and 5th, that was her principal uh, residence. And she liked the stability it offered the security it offered uh, also because Caroline and John, of course, they grew up there and they were uh, going to school there. And when she got married, of course, they were still uh, just uh, kids. So it was important for them to have a stable base when they went to uh, school. So that was always her principal uh, residence, even when she was married, even in the seven years that she was married to uh, Aristotle and Nassus. So after writing this book, what surprised you most about her that you maybe didn't know before researching about her? Well, I think the main thing is, uh, I think the thing that I think impressed me the most was that uh, how everybody knew that she held up so well that weekend uh, after the assassination. But I think the thing that Americans 
didn't really realize that that was the Jackie that uh, had always existed. They'd always seen her incorrectly through this, and again, this prism of being just a closed horse and, and all of that. That was the real Jackie, just the very dignified and gracious Jackie. Uh, I think people always misunderstood, uh, one, how intelligent she was. She was just extraordinarily intelligent. And two, they, under- they misunderstood and underestimated how strong she was. Everything that she endured, I mean, seeing her husband's uh, head was literally blown apart inches from her face. She endured that and moved on. She was incredibly strong, incredibly disciplined, uh, quite intelligent. She spoke multiple languages, was just, uh, uh, she she read about uh, a book a day sometimes. She would just devour books. She was incredibly well-educated. She was not one of these, you know, a flighty a women marrying some rich guy. Uh, she was quite accomplished on her own. And I think the fact that she went on after Onassis died in 1975, uh, she at the time, even then, was only in her mid-40s. She went on to have a rather illustrious career in the publishing industry. She obviously didn't need the money, but she felt like she could uh, contribute. So she went to work in uh, that industry and brought out a lot of uh, really amazing books not just on arts and culture, but uh, interesting figures like uh, even she worked with Michael Jackson, for example, on a, on a book and this kind of thing. She was just enormously well-rounded. And, you know, if you heard the, you've heard the term a renaissance man that's, uh, uh, you know, attached to certain men. Uh, she was a renaissance woman in every sense of the word. And it's interesting now we hear people talking, sort of comparing other first ladies uh, to her. Every first lady is unique in their own way, but uh, I think she was so unique because she was uh, just a, such, she was literally a Renaissance woman. And it's interesting that she said if she could have married any president other than John F. Kennedy, who would it have been? And she instantly said Thomas Jefferson, because Jefferson uh, was a, literally a Renaissance man as well. He had so many things that he was good at and so many varied interests and he just devoured books like uh, she did and uh, on and on and on so i think that was a very revealing answer so these are i think some of the things that uh, surprised me the most well uh the book is called jackie her transformation from first lady to jackie o uh, by paul brandis paul we appreciate you coming on the show and telling us about all the research that you did on this book well, I really appreciate it, Richard. Just a great, uh, a great chance to uh, talk, and uh, thank you very much. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. You didn't place too much credence in the movie JFK, did you? Oh, no, no. I mean, it's like it's it's a fine film. It has one of the best uh, musical scores John Williams ever wrote. But uh, I mean, even. 
he, even Oliver Stone admits that he, he looks at it as a fiction to fight other fiction is what he, how he described or at least justifies oh, I know. it. But, I, um, my, my fear is that people, yeah. you know, you know, it's been, been decades since the assassination people, you know, people don't know their history and they look at that and go, man, that's what happened. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. They should, right. They should yeah. make a, uh, I haven't seen that in a long time to go back and like, but they should put up like a, uh, superimpose on the print of that movie throughout the whole thing that this is just a, a work of fiction. Right, right, you know, exactly. It's not what happened, you know. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.